Daniel chapter 1. The year was about 600 BC, 600 years before Christ. And armies surrounded Jerusalem. The feared and hated Babylonian war machine had finally come. Jerusalem bobbed like a cork in a sea of enemy soldiers as far as the eye could reach in every direction. And this is not how the world was supposed to be. God's people living in God's holy city with God's presence and God's temple under God's law, surrounded by her enemies, cut off from all help and all hope. And Daniel and his three friends stood upon that wall and looked out and mourned. Inside the city, people were dying, one after another after another, because the city was besieged and they were out of food. The world had gone mad. And their God was nowhere to be seen. The world didn't make sense. Welcome to Daniel's world. Welcome to our world as well. The book may be old, but the message is timely. We live in the same world and face the same problems with the same challenges to our faith. A world gone mad with people trying to make their way through it, and things not as they ought to be. So welcome to the book of Daniel. We're starting our new study this morning. The great king, serving God in a world gone mad. The book is from a different era, yes, There'll be some new names and places for us to get used to. Is, is it in a different language? Sure. Different culture? Absolutely. Same world. Same brokenness. Same temptations. Same call to faithfulness to God's people. So just a quick overview. The book of Daniel is probably the easiest one in the Bible to outline. It's got two halves. It's got 12 chapters. The first six chapters are one thing, the second six chapters are another. So the first six chapters are stories, they're, they're history of God's faithfulness to Daniel and his friends. That's the first six chapters. With stories that you know and love. We get the fiery furnace, and Daniel in the lion's den, and all this good stuff in the first six chapters of Daniel. The second six chapters, chapters 7 through 12, are all visions prophecy, apocalyptic literature. A little hard or a little bit more difficult for us to get our hands around. But both halves designed by God to encourage God's people on how to live in a world gone mad. How to be faithful to God as, as exiles from their land, growing up in the shadow of idols. This world and her great kings we begin, we're going to start in Daniel chapter 1 because, well, that seemed to make sense. 
the opening paragraph of Daniel 1. My wife is sitting here just amazed that I can be so corny so publicly. <laughs> Chapter 1, uh, the first paragraph, sets the scene for the whole book as well as for the first chapter. So follow along with me as I read Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, youths, without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. God's word. It would be easy for us in this grouping of new names and new places to miss the tragedy. This is a tragedy. It's a story of loss, a series of defeats, a scene of sorrow. The first verse reminds us of the good old days. As it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Back in the day when Jerusalem had a king, Judah had a king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Jehoiakim, descendant of King David sitting on David's throne, in David's city, reigning over David's people, with the temple, the presence of God, the good old days. But then, the armies of Babylon had marched. As they had marched across the entire Middle East, so they flowed like a, like a river going over its banks throughout the land of Judah and lapping up against the walls of Jerusalem, all under the command of the Babylonian king, the great king, Nebuchadnezzar. These floodwaters lapped up against Jerusalem, and she was besieged, and she fell. And what a fall. What a fall it was. None, I dare say, of us have been through anything like it. The, the siege lasted long enough that they were, so to speak, hungered out. Death by starvation, death by disease, death by war, so much death. And if you didn't die, then you were, you were taken captive. And you were marched and taken away, taken away to the mighty Babylon. 
Babylon, center of the world, world superpower. It's the center of the world's economy, the center of the military, the center of culture and influence and ideas and philosophy and religion. Yes, definitely religion, because it was acknowledged by all the Babylonians that it was their gods that enabled them to conquer, and their gods had conquered every god throughout the known world, even in Jerusalem, the temple of the God of Israel had fallen. The footstool of God was plundered. His dwelling place was pillaged. And they took the articles of worship from the sanctuary of the Holy of Holies and put them in the temples of Marduk and Bel and Nabu and Aku. Where is the great God of Israel? Well, to Babylon they were taken. Taken were the nobles, particularly taken were the children. They took the youth, the next generation, the future. And the great king Nebuchadnezzar used the strength of an empire to erase a culture, to re-educate a people. It was a gigantic deprogramizing of a people group, reprogramming them. And Daniel and his three friends are enrolled in class. This reprogramming would take three years, and they're given Babylonian names and Babylonian food and the Babylonian language and a Babylonian education. The attempt is to erase their Jewish identity to erase their identity as the people of God so that they would now know you are the people of Babylon. They go so far as to change their names. Now Daniel, we say Daniel, if you look at the word, the last two letters in the name Daniel are E-L. L is the Hebrew for God. The word Daniel means God is my judge. They took that from him, and they called him Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. So now every time his name was used, it was a reminder of the supremacy of the gods of Babylon. And they did that so also to Daniel's friends. God-exalting names are gone. Names now proclaim the dominion of the idols. So let us be very clear, Belteshazzar. You're in Babylon now. Your time, your efforts, your language, your culture, your names, your food, your dreams serve the gods of Babylon. But Daniel disagreed, which brings us to verse 8. Let's read together. But Daniel resolved. But Daniel resolved that he would not 
defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned you your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. The pivotal verse in the chapter, the fulcrum around which everything turns is verse 8. But Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, the people of God were under very strict dietary regulations. We know them still today. Kosher food for the Jewish people. Daniel decided, he resolved to keep these kosher laws. Friends, what this is, is Daniel deciding, I'm still one of God's people. His rules still apply to me, and I'm going to follow one of his rules. You can name me after an idol, but still I'm following my God. Now this, friends, is a massive decision. Daniel is a captive. He's a captive in the capital city of the conquering nation a captive from a conquered people. No one's coming to help. No one. He's at the center of the enemy's strength in the courtyards of the palace of the great king. All of his people and perhaps his God have been defeated. And in that place, he resolved. He resists. He takes his life into his hands and says, no. So he goes first to the chief eunuch and says, hey, Let's do this. And the guy's like, let's not. Because I fear the king, and it would not go well with me if we did that. So that didn't work. So Daniel goes to the next down in the chain of command, says, hey, let's do a 10-day trial. What's Daniel doing? What is he resolved about? What is he fighting for? What is he defiant about. We need to see what he's defiant about and what he's not defiant about. My fellow Americans. My fellow Americans. Because we're a stand-up-for-yourself kind of people. It is not difficult to motivate Americans to fight for something. country was birthed through a fight for our rights. 
And let us be clear, Daniel is not standing up for his rights. His rights have been trashed a long time ago. There, there's nothing left. They're, they're in tatters behind him. He is not refusing the education. He's not refusing the relocation. He's not refusing the renaming. Doesn't mean he likes any of that, by the way. But he didn't draw the line at that. He sees that there are a thousand hills he could die on, but he picks only one, only one hill that he's going to die on. And here, here it is. He's not fighting for his rights. He's fighting for his faithfulness to God. That's what he's fighting for. He will be faithful to God. His concern is for his own obedience to Jesus. He's concerned not with how Babylon is defiling the world, but he's concerned that he not defile himself. That's his concern. Refuse to call me Daniel. Refuse to call me by my name, Daniel. God is my judge. Fine. But here's the thing. I am Daniel, and God is my judge. And to him, I will be faithful. But where is God? Where is he in this passage? Is Daniel being faithful to an absentee God? Have we seen God in this chapter? Well, we have, and you might have missed the first one. And the first one is, you might say, the difficult one back up in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. What? What? This was the Lord's doing? The Lord brought this about? All that had happened to Daniel? All that had happened to his friends? Down to the re-education program and the renaming. This is under the hand of God? Yes. This was God's hand of judgment upon Jerusalem. If we position Daniel in our Old Testament where it belongs, we could see that the people had been sinning against the Lord over and over and over and over. And the prophets had warned them and rebuked them and corrected them. They had spoken clearly of the coming judgment and had been mocked. The people had closed their eyes and shut their ears and hardened their necks and refused to repent. And finally, the wrath of God fell. And God brought judgment upon a rebellious people. And so Daniel's arrival in Babylon, and the terrible things that had happened, and the renaming, and the re-education, these did not happen because their God was defeated. They happened because their God was God. And he decreed it. And Daniel... God is my judge, remembers that, and fears that God, fears the God who is his judge. Do you wonder how Daniel could walk with such boldness as a captive in the center of the enemy's power? Life on the line, 
powerless in Babylon, defying the will of the great king who conquered all the earth. How do you keep from fearing the great king? You fear the great king. That's how you do it. Daniel knew that the great king was not the great king, but there was one, and him he feared. Daniel has another fear, a higher fear, a greater fear. He knows of a more powerful judge. He's able to, to disregard the judgment of the king of Babylon because he's living in light of the judgment of the king of heaven. You are my judge. Friend, do you ever find yourself fearing other people? Fearing what people think of you? Fearing their response to you? Let me say it, how we often experience it. You find yourself trying to fit in at times with your peers. Weighing how you dress, watching what you wear, being careful where you go, what you say, what you don't say, what they will think. Adults scared to share the gospel because of what they're going to think. It's a prison, isn't it? Just a prison. Fearing what people think, fearing the response, it is a prison. It is slavery. It's captivity. It's captivity. But I could tell you to stop fearing, but that's kind of hard to do, isn't it? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. How do, you, how, do, how do you actually do that? How do you actually stop living for your friends? You could think I'm talking to the teenagers in here, and I am, but I'm also talking to all of us. How do we stop living for the fear of man? Fear God. Fear God. Fear God. And that can be hard to do in Babylon because Babylon has its own propaganda. And you can see it in the picture. There's the great king. There's the great king. That's the great king. Babylon comes with propaganda. There's a, there's a news media, a Hollywood. There are influencers in Babylon who are going to tell you what's important, tell you who's in charge. They know nothing but earthly power and earthly wealth and earthly beauty and earthly authority. Do you know what it looks like to live in Babylon? It looks like God's irrelevant. That's what it looks like. What does it look like to live in Spotsylvania? About the same. See, God's people in the Old Testament, they're exiled out of their land. The New Testament talks about the church as exiles. We're living outside of our land. God's promised us a kingdom. He's promised us a home. He's gone to prepare a place for us. But we don't live there yet. <laughs> We still live as exiles. We still live in Babylon. This world, still broken, still proclaiming the greatness of their kings and the irrelevance of our God. Friend, if we're going to learn to fear God and not 
what the world tells us to fear. We need the Holy Spirit. We desperately need him. This is, this is a, a moment of, of prayer in the middle of the sermon that the Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, that we would not forget the reality of God, the sovereignty of God, the throne of God, that God is the great king. There is a higher throne and a greater throne and an unending throne, and it's easy to miss it in Babylon. Let us not believe the lies of Babylon as she proclaims her great king. So back to our passage again. We ask the question, where is God? And we have seen God, ruler of nations, pouring out his wrath upon sin. But now we see again his hand of blessing, verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel the Jew. Daniel the one of the defeated race. The captive, the slave, had favor and compassion with the chief of the eunuchs in the very throne room of the king. That was God granting that favor. And then the steward allows Daniel to do this 10-day trial. That, again, was God working for Daniel. And then, after that 10-day trial, verse 15 shows us God's favor. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. In just 10 days, they looked better Tell me about that diet. Man, isn't that what every diet promises? 10 pounds in 10 days, you know? This was the hand of God. And they didn't lose 10 pounds. They put it on. They went from emaciated survivors of a defeated city to strong-looking young men as they followed their God. And that was the hand of God upon them. But God isn't done. We can continue to trace his work in the last paragraph for this morning. So read with, read with me again. I'll start in verse 17. Speaking of Daniel and his friends Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. God 
gave, verse 17 says. God gave them learning. He gave them skill. He gave them understanding. He gave them wisdom. He gave them understanding of, of visions and of dreams. Daniel and his friends are brought before the king of Babylon because the great king of heaven had prepared them. And they stood before him. And they spoke with him. And he saw that they were excellent. Verse 20 has a hard time getting out of its own way, talking about how good they did when they got there. It says, And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Every matter. Everything. They were better at everything. Don't you hate that guy? They say better at everything? They were better at everything. And they weren't just a little better, somewhat better, marginally improved, twice as good, ten times better at everything than everyone. Everywhere. <laughs> Woo! All right. Sounds like God was at work. But not only that, it ends in verse 21 and says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, that doesn't mean much to us because we probably have briefly forgotten our Rolodex of Babylonian kings. So let me remind you who King Cyrus is. He's not a Babylonian king. There was Nebuchadnezzar, and then the guy after him, and then the guy after him, the kings of Babylon. And then Cyrus, king of Persia, came in and defeated Babylon. And Daniel was still standing before King Cyrus. So, how did the God of Israel preserve his people in Babylon until Babylon had crumbled around them? That's how long. Turns out, the God of Israel, he's the God of Babylon, too. He's God of all the earth. He's not just present in Jerusalem. He's present with his people in Babylon. Church, listen. He's present with his people in Babylon. Even when it doesn't look like it. Even when the world's gone mad. Even when all the power structures are in the wrong direction. And all the influencers are pointing the wrong way. And the gods of this world seem to triumph. There is one God still at work, even in Babylon. And I'll say especially in Babylon. Don't believe the propaganda. We live, church, where do we live in history? It's not the identical same time as Daniel. It's a little different. Christ has come. Christ has come. We get a different view of God, a better view of God in the coming of Christ. But we live in what you would call the time between the times, between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. He's promised us a kingdom, but it hasn't come yet. We're in the already and not yet of God's kingdom. It's already broken into the world, but it's not yet fully here. It's not yet fully seen. And so, boy, our, our world is a lot like Daniel's. It will often look, it will usually look, it will always look like the great king 
is some worldly power, is some worldly thing, and that God is strangely absent. Don't believe the propaganda. There is a great king. His name is Jesus. There is one on the throne. He is Emmanuel. There is a God in Babylon, and his name is Yahweh. He is God. The call of our passage is found in verse 8. But Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved because Daniel could see his God. And Daniel trusted his God. And Daniel feared his God, even while Daniel lived in Babylon church. Let us resolve to follow our God. Let us resolve as Daniel did. I know who my judge is. God is my judge. And I live for him in a pagan world. And I live for him when the world goes mad, when the world isn't the way I want it to be, when things don't happen the way I want them to happen, when things go off the rails and everybody around me says, where was God in that? Let us resolve, and specifically, that we would not defile ourselves with the defilements of Babylon. But what if we have? What if you have? What if we have believed the propaganda, or sometimes do believe the propaganda? What, what if we actually doubt the presence of God who's so hard to see at times in this world. If we have defiled ourselves with some of the allurements of Babylon. Friends, for those few here, for all of us here, that that applies to, let me remind you of who our great king is. Our great king, like Daniel, was an exile from his homeland. Like Daniel, he endured loss upon loss and suffering upon suffering. Like Daniel, he entered the world gone mad. And like Daniel, he lived in the shadow of the idols. Daniel was a faithful exile, but I'm speaking of the faithful exile. The one whom God so loved the world that he sent his son. And Christ was exiled, as it were, from heaven to live in this broken world, to take on human flesh and human weakness and human frailty and, and live beneath the sky, the sky that makes it kind of hard to see God sometimes. And he lived faithfully day upon day upon day. Now, Daniel, we see reports of his faithfulness. Those are encouraging. Those are wonderful. But the problem is I'm not Daniel. I don't know if you are. The problem is I, I find myself coming short. And now we talk about Jesus, and he does it even better than Daniel. Great. He does come as our example, and we should follow that example. But friends, he comes as more than our example. Because this faithful exile came for unfaithful exiles like you and me. He came 
to do it right when we couldn't, to live faithfully under the sky, to live faithfully as an exile, because he knew his people couldn't. So he came and did it for us. He lived as an exile for you, and he died as an exile for you in your place, in my place. He took our unfaithfulness and our defilement and our lack of the resolve that Daniel had, and he bore the wrath of God for us. We've seen the wrath of God in this passage, haven't we? Poured out upon Jerusalem 600 years prior, well, 600 years later, the wrath of God was poured out right outside Jerusalem upon the sin-bearing, suffering, faithful King Jesus, where he took all the wrath for all of our sins and all of our failures. There is none left for you, dear friend. There is none left. So that's your king. That's the great king. That's our king, dear exiled church. Faithful for us. Faithful to us. Isn't he good? Isn't he kind? What king is like our king? He is the great king. What greatness this is. So, as his happy people, as his happy forgiven people, as his people who have been freed even from the need to be perfect and freed from our sin. Now we're free to resolve like Daniel. Let's follow him. Let's serve that king. Resolved. Resolved. Church, let us resolve to follow God in Babylon. Let us resolve to not defile ourselves with the offerings of Babylon. Let us resolve to fear our God and not those around us. Let us resolve we live for the great king. We live for him. He is worthy of it.